All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our time in the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are grateful for what we've just heard in Jeff's report. We're grateful for the impact of your Word in Brazil, and we're grateful for the impact on pastors who have been challenged to teach through your Word verse by verse. Only in that way do we believe that you can fully understand and correctly understand your word as well as to be able to think through all of the areas of life as they are addressed through a verse-by-verse study. Father, we thank you for Jeff's willingness to go, and we pray for others that will be willing to go and help out as well in that particular mission. Father, we thank you for your word and our opportunity to study it this morning. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of our souls to your truth, that we might understand it and apply it in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We have, after several months, concluded our study of the Olivet Discourse. And chapter 26 begins the next section of the Gospel of Matthew. It begins with the conclusion of what Jesus has said in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And this next section concludes our study of this Gospel, but it is not going to happen quickly because there are 75 verses in chapter 26, and then there's an additional, I think it's around 58 or no, 66 verses in 27, and then uh, 20 in the last chapter. So this will take a little while. There's so much here, and I think what I'm, at least what I'm thinking right now, is doing this more as a a, a, not a complete merger of the other Gospels talking about this period, because that would include the entire Upper Room Discourse as well, but especially within the, the, the structure of these three chapters, bringing in what is covered in the other Gospels uh, a little bit more than I have in, in the past. As we come to this section, this is the focus of the Gospel, some people think, well, Jesus gets rejected, and so this is just kind of the, the failure almost is expressed in, in some commentaries, or this is an, an afterthought, uh, realization of the defeat of Jesus in terms of his message. But actually, in each of the Gospels, this is the target, because this is why Jesus came 
is to go to the cross and to be a sacrifice for our sins, to fulfill the promises and the prophecies, the pictures from the Old Testament related to uh, the sacrificial system that he as the Lamb of God uh, will fulfill, that he is the promised and future uh, messianic king, even though his offer of the kingdom was rejected, it is the kingdom is postponed. It is not a failure, but God is using that to bring about something new that was not foreseen in the Old Testament, and that relates to uh, to the church. This is not an end. The death of Christ is not an end. It is actually a beginning. And we see this foreshadowed in this opening episode. The opening episode, as we'll see, goes from verse 1 down through verse 16, even though that covers about uh, five, four or five paragraphs. It's actually tied together uh, at the end. And we see this foreshadowing of the future when we look at verse 13. In verse 13... At the conclusion of the episode of the anointing by the unnamed woman of Jesus anointing him on the head, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, see, that's anticipating something that's going beyond the cross, beyond the resurrection, that the gospel will be preached in the whole world, that what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So there is a future focus that comes through in this section. It's not a defeat. It is actually the beginning of the a glorious plan that God has. So there's a lot that goes on, in obviously, in these three chapters, but in this introduction that covers verses 1 through 16 is really a critical section, and there's a lot here. At first blush, you may think that, well, it just covers a couple of things in a summary manner, but that summary is important, and it shapes our thinking about what is coming in the next couple of chapters. So a couple of observations that I have as we begin. I've got five. First of all, this section, that is 26, 1 through 16, serves as an introduction to focus our thinking on what is coming in the rest of this chapter, the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus' arrest, his trials, his uh, crucifixion, and then the resurrection, and then his parting uh, instructions to his disciples. This is an introduction to focusing us on two questions, which you think you will hear, and you'll say, well, that sounds familiar. Who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's the focal point in these next uh, next three chapters. So this introduction sets the scene and introduces the cast of characters for this next uh, part, and that is Jesus, his disciples, and the religious leaders of the Jews. A couple of things to bring to your attention. The opening two verses focus our attention on who Jesus is. Jesus says there that uh, you know, talking to his disciples, that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We talk about who he is. He's the Son of Man and what he will do. He will be crucified for our sins. 
as we study this, and I encourage you to read through these chapters so that it makes more sense to you, is as you look at this, we see a study in contrast. Many times in the Scripture, uh, the Holy Spirit uses contrast, the good in contrast to the bad. That It's not just positive. We, we live in an era today where in a lot of churches what people want is, uh, because it's a characteristic of the younger generation, we don't want to hear any criticism. If you don't want to hear any criticism, you better not read the Bible because the Bible at its very core is polemical. It is an attack on all human viewpoint thinking and to teach Christians how to identify human viewpoint thinking in their soul so that the Holy Spirit can use the Word of God as a on a search and destroy mission to take out the human viewpoint in your thinking. And if you think all you're going to hear is positive good things and get stroked in your self-image, then you don't want to be a biblical Christian. You just want to be a cultural Christian. And what we see here is a, a study in contrast between the religious leaders of Israel and their legalism, which is evil, in contrast to the woman who will anoint Jesus. She honors him. And as he points out, what it's this anointing is about recognizing his death. It focuses our attention on his death, which is his primary work, and who he is by anointing his head, which is what would happen for a new king in Israel, is anointing, uh, they would be anointed on their head. So she recognizes who he is as the promised messianic king and what he is going to do. So person and work come together in that episode. In contrast, the religious leaders don't have a clue who he is. They don't understand who he is or what he is doing because they're so immersed in the arrogance of legalism and um, and religion that they totally miss the boat. And whenever you are mired in religion and legalism, you are going to be hostile and antagonistic uh, to the truth. So we see the contrast between the religious leaders and the woman, but we also see a contrast between the woman and Judas Iscariot. Uh, the, she is the woman who selflessly worships Jesus, and Judas is the man who selfishly betrays Jesus. And this leads and moves the action along, as we will see. There's a contrast, and this is seen in the contrast between uh, the leader's plan and the Lord's plan. In the verses 3 through 5, we see that the leader's plan is not to have Jesus uh, crucified during the Passover feast. That's really ultimately Satan's plan, is we don't want, we want to uh, keep God from fulfilling his plan according to his timetable and win some sort of tactical victory. So the leaders plot together and they say, whatever we want to do, let's not do it during the feast. And through Judas' uh, machinations and his betrayal, his willingness to betray Jesus at that time, it moves the action forward in terms of their uh, their timetable. So there's a contrast between the leader's plan and God's plan as he is exercising his sovereign sovereign control to bring about um, Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Jesus has his own plan. He's not going to be surprised by what the... Um, by what the uh, religious leaders are attempting to accomplish, and all of it works together under God's sovereignty. We also see a contrast between the evil hostility of religion 
as they seek to do everything through deception, through guile, through trickery, through lies to destroy Jesus. And that is contrasted to the generosity and the beauty of grace as exhibited by this unnamed woman who is uh, making a very expensive sacrifice in anointing his head with this uh, extremely expensive uh, perfume. We see in this contrast the emphasis on how religion hates Jesus. And whether it's an idolatrous religion like the idolatry of, of Hinduism or the idolatry of the ancient Baal religions or whether it's the more sophisticated idolatry uh, of modern uh, self-worship or whether it's the religion of liberalism or religions of other ideologies, uh, they all hate Jesus and are antagonistic to Jesus. Those who under, understand Jesus want to adore him. They want to worship him. They want to put him at the center of their life. And so there's always uh, this antagonism that comes from religion of all kinds. We also see a contrast between the stinginess of the disciples they are just, they're like many Christians. They see somebody spend money on something beautiful for the church done from a right motive to worship the Lord, and they react and say, well, you're just spending too much money. I've heard that in, in churches. And yet, if it's done right, that's what this is teaching. There's a lot of things that we're going to see here related to our attitudes towards money and finance in relation to worship. So there's this contrast between the stinginess of the disciples and the superficiality of their understanding of who Jesus is and the deep, profound devotion of the woman and her sophisticated understanding of who Jesus is. We see a contrast between the memory that we have of Judas Iscariot Judas is the poster child of treachery and betrayal down through the centuries. But what we see in Jesus' interpretation of what this woman does is that though she is not named and she is unknown, what she did as an act of worship becomes a, he says, this will be a memorial through the ages that is always connected to what he does on the cross because her anointing speaks of his preparation uh, for the grave. There's a reference to Passover here that we get in the second verse. You know that after two days is the Passover. The Passover, by the mention of Passover, begins to focus our attention on Jesus as the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Passover is the feast that was established by God when he redeemed uh, Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it is the picture of his ultimate redemption of the human race from slavery to sin. And so Passover is the feast that speaks of redemption of God's people and when a Jewish context, his covenants with them. And the crucifixion of Christ fulfills the type of the Passover, and it also fulfills the covenant 
uh, foundations that are stated in the Jewish covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. The foundation is laid at the cross by his uh, payment for our sin. We also see in this chapter that the second main event after the anointing of Jesus by the unnamed woman is the institution of the Lord's table, which grows out of the Passover meal, the Seder meal that he celebrates with his disciples. And Jesus transforms the Lord's table into something that that is designed to focus our attention on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. So what we see throughout this whole section is constant reminder of this theme of who is Jesus? What did he do? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the God-man. He is. He was sent by God the Father into human history to fulfill the mission of paying the penalty for our sins. The two are inseparable. Now all that's just the first observation. Second observation, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are much shorter. Second observation is though this section has four paragraphs, each is relatively short, deals with a different topic, a different scenario, but they're tied together. If you, if you look at the second verse, it says, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's the Greek word paradidomi. That same word is used again in verse 15 and then in verse 16. When Judas is speaking to the religious leaders, he says, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you, paradidomi? And then in verse 16, So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him, paradidomi. So this is like an, it brackets the whole section, this vocabulary. In literature, that's called an inclusio, where you have a statement at the beginning and a statement at the end. It shows that in terms of literature, it wraps it up together. Matthew has done this intentionally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show us that, that this all fits together. We should understand these uh, separate events as a unit, and I think that's uh, very important. We'll come back to why that's important as we go into this. Third thing is the anonymity of the woman is important. Ironically, it is contrasted with this announcement that her deed will be a memorial down through the centuries in the teaching of the gospel, that even though she does this with without being known who she is, without being named, that event and that woman will be remembered through the centuries. Fourth, the issue of money and finances is at the core of the disciples' disagreement there uh, dissatisfaction with this woman. How in the world can she spend all that money? That, that, that's a, a year's salary for a laborer, and she just pours it over his head. We could spend that money a thousand different ways. And see, they don't understand grace. They don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand what he's going to do because that anointing it symbolizes her understanding of what he is going to do, that he is going to die. And so it shows how superficial the disciples are 
and by application how superficial many Christians are when it comes to how how money is spent. We'll talk a lot about that as we go through through that section. And then fifth, above all, what the thread that runs through this entire introduction is and the entire section is the theme of Christ's death. The focus for Christianity is on Jesus. What makes Christianity Christianity is the message that Jesus died for our sins, that he was crucified in our place. He is a substitutionary sacrifice. And because of that, he bore in his own body on the tree the penalty for our sins. This is emphasized again and again in Scripture. Yes, the resurrection is important. But the resurrection throughout Scripture is symbolic of the new life that we have in Christ, not the payment for sin. The payment for sin happens on the cross, but the foundation for our new life in him, according to Romans 6, 3 through 6, is his resurrection, and often that is misunderstood today. We have the emphasis on the death of Christ in passages like Romans 5, uh, 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will a righteous man, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We look at 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. This was the priority in my message, is what Paul is saying, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, there was much else that he taught. He taught the burial, he taught the resurrection, all those things he mentioned, because his focus in that chapter is on the reality of the resurrection and why it makes a difference in the life of the believer after he's saved, not in getting the life. I've gone through that many times. And he... And 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. And then in 1 Corinthians 2.2 he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is the work, the redemptive work of Christ is what happens on the cross when he pays the penalty for sin. That's when the transaction takes place. That's when the justice of God is satisfied or propitiated. That is when our sins are paid for. The debt is canceled, Colossians 2, 12 through 14. This takes place on the cross. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Notice the healing there isn't a physical healing from disease. It is the spiritual solution to sin. Often the word healing is used as a synonym for the payment for sin and the solution to sin. And so it is that death on the cross that is where that transaction takes place. And in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says... For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that substitutionary atonement, the just put in place of the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. 
Now, as we come to Matthew 26, we see a transition taking place that begins at the first verse. Now, it came to pass, a common idiom in the Greek, moving us to the next scene of action. Now, it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, you know, and it should be stated, you know this, that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be, del- will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, a couple of things we ought to note about this. When we see this phrase, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, this is the final of, final of five times that Jesus says this in Matthew. Matthew uses this as a way to organize his material. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are more words of Jesus recorded than in any of the other Gospels. And we have several discourses. Usually in commentaries, they talk about the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. But actually, as I pointed out at the beginning, there are five different times when Jesus speaks at length through the Gospel. And we see these in... um, as they're concluded in Matthew 7:28, Matthew 11:1, Matthew 13:53, Matthew 19:1, and Matthew 26:1. Each one of these verses says, "Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings." So there are these five uh, discourses or lengthy instruction sections by Jesus to his disciples. Matthew 7.28 follows the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 11.1 follows his instructions and teaching to his disciples. Matthew 13.53 follows the long chapter where he speaks in the parables related to the previously unrevealed information about the kingdom of God and its postponement. then we come to Matthew 19.1, and that follows a section in Matthew uh, 17 and 18 where he has given further instructions to the disciples. And then this verse follows the Olivet Discourse. So what we have in Matthew is some tremendous teaching that we've, all, we've gone through all of it now, and the remainder of Matthew is primarily narrative. It's primarily telling us what happens in the events leading up to Jesus' arrest, the crucifixion, his uh, death and burial, and then his uh, resurrection and his final instructions for the, uh, the disciples. So as we look at this, it is a reminder that takes us back to what we have seen and what we have studied in this gospel. Now, I want to take you through this just as a reminder. Remember, all of this is just introduction uh, to getting into chapter 26, but I want to remind us of the time frame. What's been happening with Jesus and his disciples over the last uh, four or five days? Okay, I think that's important. We're going to get into a lot of chronology here, and I'm going to state some things. Some of you may go, well, 
I've never heard that before. Well, that's okay. We'll hear some new things. I don't want to get into the intricacies of the chronology here. There's so much discussion, tremendous amount of debate that goes on about the chronology. I'm going to wait and put it together and do a special probably on a Tuesday or Thursday night uh, rather than on a Sunday morning because it, it, it gets a little intricate. But I think it's important for people to uh, to understand some of these things. In Matthew 19.1, when we read this, we see that Jesus is leaving Galilee in the north, and he's coming south. He's headed to Jerusalem for his final trip to Jer- Jerusalem. When he heads down from the north, he's going to cross east across the Jordan, somewhere just south of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to come down through Perea. He's going around Samaria, and then he's going to come down just north of the Dead Sea, cross over where Jer- Jericho, really the old and the new cities of Jericho, excuse me, are located, and then he's going to ascend to Jerusalem, and then there will be the entry into Jerusalem, and then the instruction that we've seen. So Matthew 19.1 talks about him departing uh, from uh, Galilee and heading south. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19 tells us that Jesus began his travels up to Jerusalem. He crosses the Jordan, uh, goes to Jericho, and then he will ascend to Jerusalem. As he does that, he predicts his death. He tells his disciples he's going to go to Jerusalem to die, and this is the third time. Here are the three references, Matthew 16, 21. Matthew 17:22, Matthew 20:18 through 19. The fourth mention of his, or the fourth prediction of his uh, going to be killed, is in our passage in Matthew 26, verse 2. In Matthew 16:21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. That was the Father's plan. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, that's basically the Sanhedrin, and be killed and raised up the third day. Now, he just says he's going to be killed. He doesn't say how. He, and then he says he's going to be raised from the dead. I don't think they had a clue what that meant. They heard it, but that didn't mean they comprehended it. Then, in chapter 17, verse 22, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. There's that key word we'll talk about several times, paradidomi, which is sometimes translated being handed over. It has a range of meanings, and depending on the context, sometimes it has the idea of being betrayed. It's a key word we'll have to look at. And then in Matthew 20, 18 through 19, which is just before his entry into Jerusalem, he says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, now this is the second time in these, uh, the second time in these three uh, predictions that he uses that term, Son of Man, uh, will be betrayed, paradidomi again, betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify And the third day he will rise again. And so he emphasizes now crucifixion and precisely resurrection the third day. Then in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, we saw that he entered into Jerusalem. Now pay attention to this. He enters into Jerusalem. We're going to call that day one. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. 
Then on day two, Matthew mentions this in Matthew 21, 18, and 19. He curses the fig tree. Now, if you read the parallel in Mark 11, Mark has another day in there. There's a third day. In Matthew, he just sort of skips over that and says, and when the disciples saw the withered fig tree, you don't realize, unless you look at Mark, that it's actually the third day. So day one, he enters. Day two, he curses the fig tree. Day three is the big day. In terms of Jesus' life, this is the longest day. Okay? It is everything from 2120 down through 2546. All those confrontations with the religious leaders and then his announcement of the, of the uh, seven plus one woes that we studied in chapter 23 then the Olivet Discourse. All of that is on one day. It is a long day. And then we now have the evening, and this is the end of that third day. What's interesting here in the beginning, he says, after two days I'll be crucified. In other words, day after tomorrow I'm going to get crucified. That I didn't realize this until the last two or three days. That is one of the most crucial statements on figuring out this whole chronology. Because the bottom line is, no matter how you work out, you've got these three days, and then two days, and then he's crucified. If you put it, chart it out, go home, however you work it out, it can't end up with a Wednesday crucifixion. Now, all of us have been taught a Wednesday crucifixion. It is impossible, according to that scenario, you're going to have him doing a bunch of stuff on the Sabbath, which would violate the Sabbath law, and Jesus never never violates the literal Sabbath law. He violates the Pharisees' interpretation of it, but not the law itself. So it pretty much excludes Wednesday as an option. I think there's about a 80% probability it's going to exclude a Thursday option as well. That's why we're going to have to take some time and do a special lesson just dealing with all of this because it's extremely complex and there's a, a lot of data there that has to be considered. So we'll do that in another, in another lesson. But what we see here is that Jesus is controlling, going to control the time of his death. He says that it will take place after two days. But in the second part of this opening, the chief priests are going to say, no, we're not going to let it happen on the feast because it's going to uh, create a riot among the people. So we see Jesus controls the time. Jesus Christ controls history. At the same time, we learn that individual human volition is functional, but within parameters established by the sovereignty of God. It is the religious leaders who exercise their volition to kill Jesus, but it is according to the plan of God. We see this in passages like Acts 2.23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That's talking about God's side of the equation. Unknown to man, God is not coercing man. On the other side, Peter says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Human responsibility for their actions, even though this is what is part of the plan of God. Jesus is in control, John 10, 18. No one is talking about his life, that he lays down his life. 
He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And then Jesus says, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. When he says, you know, it's in the perfect tense, which indicates past completed action. That means they already know this. He's told them three times already. You know this. You may not really grasp it yet, but you know it. And he, they know, of course, that it's a Passover. So he's emphasizing this is something they know. And he adds to this that in two days it's going to be the Passover. And that is when he will be crucified. Now, when you try to deal with all these issues related to chronology... When he says, after two days is the Passover, is he talking about, A, the Passover meal, the Seder meal he'll be celebrating with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross? The rest of the uses of this word in this chapter all relate to that Seder meal that he's going to have with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. Or does this refer to the day of the Passover, which is when the lambs are slaughtered, Or does it refer to that evening, which would be the 15th of Nisan, when everyone is sitting down and eating the Passover meal? Those second two are the same day. But if it's the night, if he's referring to the meal he's going to eat with his disciples, if that's Thursday night, then this would be Tuesday night when he's saying this. If he's talking about Friday, then this is going to be Wednesday night. It's ambiguous. You can't nail it down with absolute precision. So he says, after two days is a Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up. Again, all through the uh, Olivet Discourse, we saw him refer to himself as the Son of Man. This is a messianic title. He will be delivered up. Again, it's not here. It doesn't have the idea so much as betrayal as it uses it in some place. He'll be given over to the Gentiles. It will be used... When, it refer, when Judas does it in terms of betrayal. And we see the opposition from the religious leaders. The chief priest, the scribes, the elders, that's, that's, part of the, uh, that's part of the Sanhedrin. Not, the scribes aren't mentioned. This is an ad hoc meeting of the, um, uh, of, of the religious leaders just to try to figure out what they're going to do. They're going to plot. They're going to conspire. How are we going to accomplish this? Notice it says the chief priests. How many chief priests, how many high priests did Israel have? You can count them on one hand, one finger, one. Why does it say chief priests? Because Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, was the legitimate high priest, but the Romans thought he exercised too much political power, so they took him out and replaced him with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas must have been um, very pleasing to the Romans because he was the longest high priest through, through this period. He's high priest from 18 to 36. So for 18 years, he's the high priest. He must have been a, a, a very pleasing lackey to the Romans is what that indicates. Uh, we know of his existence by because he's mentioned by uh, Josephus. Uh, his full name was Joseph Caiaphas, and because we've discovered his ossuary, the bone box in which his bones uh, were buried. 
They gathered at the palace of the high priest. This is the picture of the uh, of the Temple Mount. I can't get there. We go. The mouse over here. Here's the uh, area where we call it the Temple Temple Mount, where the temple was located. Here, just outside this yellow line here, or kind of an orange line actually, that's uh, the wall uh, that Josephus mentions. This is where Jesus was crucified, and just south of it is what they call the Jaffa Gate today. It's where the what the so-called Citadel of David is located. Uh, they've discovered that this is where the Praetorium was located, and this is probably where um, Pontius Pilate's uh, headquarters was located, as well as Herod's palace. So tradition had um, Pontius Pilate's palace over here, or just north of the uh, Antonia Fortress. That's a much longer distance. This is about... 200 feet. Uh, that's going to be important later on. We'll see this map again. But this just shows you this is where their meeting is, is generally in this area, uh, uh, just that where, uh, where the high priest would have, would have met there. Okay, this is Caiaphas's bone box uh, with his name is uh, etched on the side. And they plot to take Jesus by trickery, that is deceit, and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, there's two groups of people. There's those who were with him on his entry into Jerusalem, and they were his disciples, and those who believed in him. And there was a large multitude of those. But then there were the others. Don't mix them up. Those who are in the courtyard screaming for his death, those are the unbelievers. They're not the same people that were there uh singing the psalms as he entered into Jerusalem. They're, they're two different groups of people. And we see of them in Matthew 21, when he's entering, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. They recognize who he is as a prophet. And uh, we're also told in that chapter that when the Pharisees began to plot against him, uh, they sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So they are fearful of them. What we see here exhibited by the religious leaders is the evil of religion. A couple of things as we close. Religion is not Christianity. Religion is a human system to try to please God based on what man does whereas Christianity is based on God doing that which pleases him, and we simply believe it or accept it. Religion attempts to please God on man's terms. Man defines who God is, what God wants, what God is like, and what God will accept, and then man provides it, whereas Christianity lets the Bible determine who God is and what God requires and man simply believes it. Religion is always based on arrogance, and arrogance always leads to division, it leads to chaos, and it leads to destruction. Religion is the source of much evil in the world. Religion in the forms of non-Christian religions, but religion also in the forms of legalistic Christianity. It was legalistic Christianity, not biblical Christianity, that provided the motivation for the Crusades into the Middle East, the Crusades of the Middle Ages. That had nothing to do. You'll often hear people say, well, the uh, Muslims have jihad and the Christians had their crusade. 
The only difference is that jihad is consistent with what is commanded in the Quran, whereas the Crusades were a contradiction and a disobedience of what is said in the New Testament. Uh, They are not the same thing. The Crusades were the product of evil religion, legalistic religion, uh, missions, especially in the 19th and 20th century, was a product of grace-oriented Christianity taking the gospel to the world and transforming the nations. Biblical Christianity is about a relationship, a relationship with God through belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Biblical Christianity is grounded on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to reflect on this, to be reminded of what we've learned in Matthew, to look over where we're going, to come to a focus on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Father, Anyone who's listening to this message today who is not a believer in Christ, who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of what will happen if they were to die tomorrow, Father, we pray that they would come to an understanding, a clear perception of the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christianity, that you don't have to work for your salvation, you don't have to earn your salvation, you don't have to try to please God because we can't do any of those things. As Scripture says, there is none who does good, no, not one. The only one who has done good is the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died for us. And so all we can do is trust in him, believe in him, and to recognize that he is our Savior, the one who provides us with eternal life. Father, we pray that it will be clear that all we have to do, all anyone has to do is believe in Jesus. Believe he died as your substitute, as that sacrificial lamb in your place. And at that instant, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we have learned, that our lives need to be focused, centered on who Jesus is and what he did. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.